1099.3 WBT. Pete Callender here and uh, going over the oral arguments that were heard yesterday at the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Uh, and this has got everybody uh, wondering whether they are going to overturn Roe v. Wade and uh, Casey v. Planned Parenthood. Uh, and... I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm not making any predictions because these are court proceedings. You never know what these nine justices are going to do. I'm just bringing you the arguments as they were uh, delivered. So yesterday, Justice Thomas begins the questioning um, of the uh, the lawyer for the Center for Reproductive Rights, a woman by the name of Julie Rickleman. And uh, he starts trying to kind of narrow down, like, what exactly is the right that we are arguing about. Counsel, um, I just have one question. I assume you, uh, from your brief, you're relying on uh, an autonomy theory. Both uh, bodily integrity and the ability to make decisions related to family, marriage, and childbearing, Your Honor. Um, Shortly, some years after we decided Casey, uh, we had a case out of South Carolina, I believe, involved a woman who had been convicted of criminal child neglect because she ingested cocaine during pregnancy. Uh, In her case was post-viability, so it doesn't fit in the facts of this case. If she had ingested cocaine pre-viability, and had the same negative consequences to her child. Do you think the state had an interest in enforcing that law against her? The state may have, Your Honor. The state can certainly regulate to serve its interests in fetal life and in women's health. Those particular laws tend to undermine both of those interests because they deter women from seeking prenatal care, which is counterproductive to both their health. But the pre-viability as well as post-viability? No, Your Honor. The, the court has been clear that after viability, states can prohibit abortion except to save No, I mean, the, the in my example of criminal child neglect. Right. I understand you. your argument is about abortion. I am trying to look at the issue of bodily autonomy right. and whether or not she has a right also to bodily autonomy in the case of ingesting uh, an illegal substance and causing harm to a pre-viability fetus. Your Honor, of course, those issues aren't posed in this case. And again, I would say that the states can certainly regulate throughout pregnancy, both before and after viability, um, to preserve uh, fetal life and to preserve the woman's health. The court has said, however, there's there are other constitu- constitutional issues at stake, for instance, in the Ferguson case, um, that states still can't violate women's Fourth Amendment rights. But again, that's not what this case is about. This case is about a ban on abortion that the state concedes is weeks before viability and the court has been clear for 50 years that the one thing that states cannot do is to take the decision completely away from the woman until viability. That until that point, it is her decision to make, given the unique physical demands of pregnancy and the life-altering consequences.
consequences of pregnancy and having a child. Yeah, Thomas. Yeah, Thomas doesn't really get an answer to that question. Then uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett asks, why is there uh, a focus on the burden of parenthood? while ignoring safe haven laws. Both Roe and Casey emphasize the burdens of parenting. And insofar as you and many of your amici focus on the ways in which the forced parenting, forced motherhood, would hinder women's access to the workplace and to equal opportunities, it's also focused on the consequences of parenting and the obligations of motherhood that flow from pregnancy. Why don't the safe haven laws take care of that problem? It seems to me that it focuses the burden much more narrowly there is, without question, an infringement on bodily autonomy, you know, which we have in other contexts like vaccines. Mm. Um, however, it doesn't seem to me to follow that pregnancy and then parenthood are all part of the same burden. And so it seems to me that the choice more focused would be between, say, the ability to get an abortion at 23 weeks or the state requiring the woman to go 15, 16 weeks more and then terminate parental rights at the conclusion. Why, why didn't you address the safe haven laws and why don't they matter? I think they don't matter for a couple of reasons, Your Honor. First, um, even if some of those laws are new since Casey, the idea that a woman could place a child up for adoption has, of course, been true since Roe. So it's a consideration that the court already had before it when it decided those cases and adhered to the viability line. But in addition, um, we don't just focus on the burdens of parenting, and neither did Roe and Casey. Instead, pregnancy itself is unique. It imposes unique physical demands and risks on women and in fact has impact on all of their lives and their ability to care for other children, other family members, on their ability to work. Um, and in particular, in Mississippi, those risks are alarmingly high. It's 75 times more dangerous to give birth in Mississippi than it, uh, than it is to have a pre-viability abortion, and those risks are disproportionately threatening the lives of women of color. So are you saying, I, I mean, actually, as I read Rowan Casey, they don't talk very much about adoption. It's a passing reference that... that means out of the obligations of parenthood. But as I hear this answer, then, are you saying that it, the right, as you conceive of it, is grounded primarily in the bearing of the child and the carrying of pregnancy and not so much looking forward into the consequences on professional opportunities and work life and economic burdens? No, Your Honor. I believe it's both, and, it, and that is exactly how Casey talked about it. It talked about the two strands of cases that supported the right. <laughs> One was the strand of cases supporting um, bodily integrity, and it cited to cases like Cruzan and Riggins versus Nevada. And the second was the strand of cases supporting decisional autonomy, and specifically decisions related to childbearing, marriage, and procreation decisions like Griswold, Loving. And so it's really both strands that we're relying on here. All right, so the viability line is the central finding of both Casey and Roe. But Justice Alito then asks Rickleman, uh, how would she defend that line, the viability line, because it's an argument made by pro-choice people and pro-life people, and that the line really doesn't make much sense. Alito added that even Justice Blackman himself, who wrote Roe v. Wade, uh, he described it as arbitrary. If a woman wants to be free of the burdens of pregnancy, that interest does not disappear the moment the viability line is crossed. Isn't that right? 
Uh, no, Your Honor. And if I may make a few points to answer your question. First, I think the state views of viability is arbitrary because it completely discounts the woman's interest. But viability. No, no, but does a woman have, does, uh, upon reaching the point of viability, does not the woman have the same interest that she had before viability in being free of this pregnancy that she no longer wants to continue? Viability is a principled line, Your Honor, because in ordering the well, I'm interest trying to see whether it is a principled right. line. Yes, you agree with me at least on that point, that uh, a woman still has the same interest in terminating her pregnancy after the viability line has been crossed? Yes, Your Honor, but the court balanced the interest, and in okay. ordering and the interest look at the state. interest on, on the other side. The, the fetus has an interest in having a life, and that doesn't change, does it, from the point before viability to the point after viability? In, in some people's view, it doesn't, Your Honor, but what the court said is that those philosophical differences couldn't be resolved well, what in is a way. The, that, what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. What is the philosophical argument, the secular philosophical argument for saying this is the appropriate line? There are those who say that the rights of personhood should be considered to have uh, taken hold um, at a point when the fetus acquires certain independent characteristics. But viability is dependent on medical technology and medical practice. It has changed. It may continue to change. No, Your Honor. It is principled because in ordering the interest at stake, the court had to set a line between conception and birth. And it logically looked at the fetus's ability to survive separately as a legal line because it's objectively verifiable and doesn't require the court to resolve the philosophical issues at stake. Okay. The problem there is that it actually doesn't. Uh, it's, it, the fetus cannot survive separately. It still requires human intervention on its behalf. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. The oral arguments in the Dobbs abortion rights case, playing the highlights of it. I did actually, I, I listened to the entire thing uh, yesterday evening, and then I listened to it again this morning as I pulled all the sound bites, and uh, I've read, uh, reading along with the transcripts as well. Um, and... Uh, a woman still has the same interest. This is the point that Alito was making, that a woman still has the same interest in terminating her pregnancy after the viability line has been crossed. And a fetus has an interest in having a life. And that doesn't change on either side of that viability line either. Right. So he's trying to figure out and he's trying to discern whether the, uh, the viability line is arbitrary or not. Is it a principled line or not? And you can come up with a reason for why you should use the line, but the line itself isn't a principled line. It's not based on any kind of principle. It was just, yeah, we'll draw it here. <laughs> That's it. Well, you know, because why it, it? Why is it a number of weeks that they've chosen? Why is it 24 weeks? Why not, you know, instead of 24 weeks, it's 24 and a half weeks, right? And that the interests that the state or the, I should say the Supreme Court, was trying to balance those interests for both parties, the fetus and the, and the woman, neither one of those interests are changed either before the viability date passes or after the viability date passes. That's the point. 
because again the question is when do rights obtain so then justice thomas goes back uh, clarence thomas goes back for another round uh, on that one question that he was trying to get an answer to earlier i know your interest here is in abortion i understand that but if i were to ask you what constitutional right protects the right to abortion um, is it privacy? Is it autonomy? What would it be? It's liberty, Your Honor. It's the uh, textual protection in the 14th Amendment that a state can't deprive a person of liberty without due process of law. And the court has interpreted liberty to include the right to make family decisions and the right to physical autonomy, including the right to end a previability pregnancy. So it's all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> well, the court, that's how the court has interpreted the Liberty Clause for over 100 years in cases going back to Meyer, Griswold, Carey, Loving, Lawrence. Yeah, but uh, I mean, all of those sort of just come out of Lochner. Uh, the, so it's the, we, we've dropped part of it. So I understand what you're saying. But what I'm trying to focus on is if we is to lower the level of generality or at least be a little bit more specific. In the old days, we used to say it was a right to privacy that the court found in the uh, due process, substantive due process clause, Mm -hmm. okay? So, or in substantive due process. And I'm trying to get you to tell me what are we relying on now? Is it privacy? Is it autonomy? What is it? I think it continues to be liberty, and the right exists whatever level of generality the court applies. There was um, a tradition under the common law for centuries of women being able to end their pregnancies. But in addition, when it comes to decisions related to family, marriage, and childbearing, the court has done the analysis at a higher level of generality, and that makes sense because otherwise the Constitution would reinforce the historical discrimination against women. All right. So this is the core of her argument. You heard her make a similar argument earlier. This is a liberty question. But she also talks about tradition under the common law. And a couple of historians just gutted her on this assertion in a Newsweek piece. I'll get to that. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So couple more audio clips here. Rickleman is the, Julie Rickleman is uh, the lawyer for the Center for Reproductive Rights. She's making her argument in front of the uh, Supreme Court uh, yesterday. And Justice Samuel Alito follows up after she has an exchange uh, with Justice Clarence Thomas. And, well, here's how that sounded. Well, you just mentioned the common law. So let me ask you a couple of questions about history. Did any state constitutional provision recognize that abortion was a right, liberty, or immunity in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was adopted? No, Your Honor, but it had been allowed under the common law for many years. Uh, does any judicial decision at that time uh, or shortly or immediately after 1868 recognize that abortion was a right, liberty, or immunity? There were state high court decisions shortly before then, Your Honor, talking about the ability of women to end a pregnancy before quickening. Uh, what's your best case? For the right to end a pregnancy, Your Honor? Mm-hmm. Um, it, allowing a state to take control of a woman's body 
and force her to undergo the physical demands, risks, and life-altering consequences of pregnancy is a fundamental deprivation of her liberty. And once the court recognizes that that liberty interest deserves heightened protection, it does need to draw a workable line, and viability is a line that logically balances the interests at stake. All right, so hang on a second, uh, and I'll get to the rest of this clip in a second. This is being cited as terrible lawyering by Rickleman. When uh, this is what Dan McLaughlin writes at uh, National Review, he says, when you're talking about the case law and the judge asks you what's your best case, you're not being asked for your favorite rhetorical summary. You're being asked to cite a specific judicial opinion. And Rickleman, who had just broached the subject of 19th century case law, could not think of one to cite. And that's a problem it because she's talking about common law and she's making this argument that, oh, no, you know, common law allowed for abortions all the time. And, you know, women were doing this before quickening, which is when they could feel the baby move. That's what they were saying, like, oh, before you feel the baby move, you could totally do whatever you want to do to have the child be aborted. And uh, and so when uh, Alito says, what's your best case? She doesn't have one. That's not good. The brief for the American Historical Association says that abortion was not legal before quickening in 26 out of 37 states at the time when the 14th Amendment was adopted. Is that correct? That is correct, because some of the states had started to discard the common law at that point because of a discriminatory view that a woman's proper role was as a wife and mother, a view that the Constitution now rejects, and that's why it's appropriate to do the historical analysis at a higher level of generality. In the face of that, can it be said that the right to to abortion is deeply rooted in the history and traditions of the American people? Yes, it can, Your Honor. Again, at the founding, women were able to end their pregnancy under the common law. And in fact, this court in Glucksburg specifically discussed Casey as a decision based on history and tradition. And at note 19, specifically called out and relied on Roe's conclusion that at the time of the founding and well into the 1800s, women had the ability to end a pregnancy. All right. So first off, he's not buying this line. You can tell when he says um, he cites the American Historical Association, 26 out of the 37 states. uh, Abortion was not legal. Okay, Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is on this definition of quickening. And there was a piece at uh, Newsweek a couple of weeks ago uh, by two. Uh, let's see, Justin Dyer, a professor of political science and the director of the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy at the University of Missouri, and Cody Cooper, uh, UC Foundation Assistant Professor of Political Science and Public Service at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. And they wrote uh, that in this case, history is on the side of Mississippi. Some American judges emphasized Um, A woman's feeling of fetal movement provided the first physical proof of life and thus the starting point for any abortion prosecution. But the definition of quickening as felt movement coexisted with an older usage of the term. And in that usage, quick simply meant alive, as in the familiar phrase, the quick and the dead. Thus, the term quick and the phrase quick with child often meant simply pregnant with a living kid, right? That was what it meant. Pro-abortion historians conflate quickening and quick with child. The earliest common law authorities did not identify quickening as a discrete point in a pregnancy before which abortion was 
licit or legal. Rather, the relevant point for determining whether a crime had been committed was when a woman was, quote, quick with child, that is, pregnant at all. And this is what Justice Thomas was asking about earlier when he said about the South Carolina case. Well, you've got this line, this arbitrary line of viability in this woman who had uh, done cocaine and uh, the baby died after she did all this cocaine. But it was after the, uh, the viability, right? So that's why they charged her. But what if it was before viability? Wouldn't, that, w- wouldn't everybody still have the same interests? in either charging or not charging or whatever and she refused the the lawyer refused to acknowledge it but that but the point was made as the scientific and medical evidence of when fetal life begins advanced in the 19th century british and american doctors then started urging parliament and the different states to discard quickening as an evidentiary rule and adopt comprehensive protection of prenatal infants as soon as new life begins now the judge for uh, the Reproductive Rights Center, uh, she argued that this was because of sexism, and they were trying to keep women uh, in their place, quote-unquote. Uh, but these historians say, well, no, this was because of medical advancements. This is all very, very, very difficult to decipher this stuff. And then there's, of course, the political implications. But two more clips to play. First, a check on traffic. Here's Boomer Von Cannon. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Hey, it's Sean Hannity. No, I'm kidding. This is the song he used <laughs> for a long time. Look, there there could very well be political fallout from this. I got a tweet from Monica earlier in the program. She says, if Roe is overturned, it'll push Republicans far right. They will lose the moderates that they have been able to get. And this is this is a concern. If the ruling comes down on, uh, you know, summertime, June, July time frame, and uh, you get a, a mad dash by Republican legislatures to... Uh, start restricting abortion access, Democrats then get to campaign on that. And yeah, they're going to really prefer to campaign on that than the economy. (laughs) Yeah, they're not interested in talking about the the economic stuff, the inflation. They're, They're not interested in talking about that, right? So there are concerns about this, that it will stunt the red wave in the 2022 midterms. I have no idea. I'm not looking to play that that long-term prediction game anymore i used to engage in it i i i I, I mean i'm not very good at it so i just don't do it anymore i'm just i'll be interested to see what happens too we shall see and i'll keep my eyes open for you know indications that that's where we're heading i'm just right now focused on the argument um the oral argument then proceeds i just have one clip from uh the u.s solicitor general elizabeth prelogar and uh, she, uh, representing the United States, she prompts a, a back and forth, a Q&A from Justice Samuel Alito, who asks her, wait, is it your argument that a case can never be overruled simply because it was egregiously wrong? Think about that. Are you making the argument that we can never overrule a case, a ru- an opinion, simply because it was wrong? Is that what you're saying? I think that at the very least, the state would have to come forward with some kind of materially changed circumstance or some kind of materially new argument, and Mississippi hasn't done so in this Really? Case. So it suppose is- Plessy versus Ferguson was re-argued in 1897, so nothing had changed. Would it not be sufficient to say that was an egregiously wrong decision on the day it was handed down, and now it should be overruled? 
It certainly was egregiously wrong on the day that it was handed down, Plessy, but what the court said in analyzing Plessy to Brown and Casey was that what had become clear is that the factual premise that underlay the decision, this idea that segregation didn't create a badge of inferiority, had been entirely mistaken. So is is it your answer that we needed all the experience from 1896 to 1954 to realize that Plessy was was wrongly decided? All right, so I'm going to pause right there for a second. 1954 is Brown v. Board of Ed. And by the way, Plessy... Right. Plessy v. Ferguson was the landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision, 1896, that upheld the constitutionality of segregation. This was the separate but equal. This prompted Jim Crow era laws that did not get unwound for another 60 years. Right. So her saying that, well, okay, we knew this was a wrong decision. And she just said, when he asks her about this, she says, well, no, it became uh, clear that it was the factual premise that underlaid the decision. So the decision itself wasn't wrong. They were just wrong about the facts underlying the decision, you see. Not that the decision was a bad decision, <laughs> right? This, this is what I mean, this lawyer and stuff. This is not common sense. This is not logic. This is twisting and contorting the language in order to get to a preconceived goal. Would you answer my question, had it come before the court in 1897, should it have been overruled or not? I think it should have been overruled, but I think that the factual premise was wrong in the moment it was decided, and the court realized that and clarified that when it overruled. So there are circumstances in which a decision may be overruled, properly overruled, when it must be overruled, simply because it was egregiously wrong at the moment it was decided. Well, I think every other stare decisis factor, likewise, would have justified overruling in that interest, that actually it would run counter to any notion of reasonable reliance, that it was not a workable rule, that it had become an, an outlier in our understanding of fundamental freedoms. Well, there was so a lot of reliance of on, there was a lot of reliance on Plessy. The, the South built up a whole society based on the idea of white supremacy. So there was a lot of reliance. It was, re- it was improper reliance. It was reliance on an egregiously wrong understanding of what equal protection means. But your answer is, I, I, don't, I still don't understand, I still don't have your answer clearly. Can a decision be overruled simply because it was erroneously wrong, even if nothing has changed between the time of that decision and the time when the court is called upon to consider whether it should be overruled? Yes or no? Can you give me a yes or no answer on that? This court, no, has never overruled in that situation just based on a conclusion that the decision was wrong. It has always applied the stare decisis factors and likewise found that they weren't overruling in that instance. And and Casey did that. It applied the stare decisis factors. If stare decisis is to mean anything, it has to mean that that kind of extensive consideration of all of the same arguments for whether to retain or discard a precedent itself is an additional layer of precedent that needs to be relied on and can form a, a stable foundation of the rule of law. All right. So what did she say? In all of that, what did she say? No. She said no. The answer to the question was no. He says, can you answer that? Yes or no. Can a decision be overruled simply because it was erroneously wrong? Even if nothing changed. So like you hand down the Plessy v. Ferguson ruling and then like the next day you're like, oh, you know what? Got another case. Same topic. You know what? We messed up. On that, on that one yesterday, yeah, we totally bricked. 
on that. Let's uh, let's just get that. We were wrong. Let's just scrap that and do this other one. Can you do that? And what she says is, no, you can't. Especially because when they went about constructing the opinion in uh, Roe v. Wade and in KCV Planned Parenthood, when they went about constructing this, they went about it in a way to erect all of this scaffolding around us so you can never, ever take it down. You can't ever go at it because we just built all of this stuff around it. We protected it. So if you ever want to try to move anything in there, you just got to tear the whole thing down. And then, of course, you can't tear, tear the whole thing down because that would you know, upset the binding precedents. And you can't do that. So her answer is no. But what is, he, what, what is she actually uh, saying? She's saying that Plessy v. Ferguson, despite being erroneously wrong, which seems kind of like a, seems kind of redundant, right? Despite being wrong. But she's basically defending it because they, they, they got to it in the right way. They were mistaken in their, in their underlying premises, in their underlying facts. That decision was wrong, but because they did it in the right way, well, you know, it's got to stand for 60 years. That's just what we got to do because precedent, binding precedent. It wasn't until 1954 Brown v. Board of Education that ruled racial segregation in government schools violated the 14th Amendment, and it overturned Plessy, which was a terrible decision. A terrible decision. There are a lot of similarities right now with Roe v. Wade and KCV Planned Parenthood. And I guess, well, now you know, like, you got the whole argument. You've heard all of the arguments from the oral arguments yesterday. Hopefully, you are now armed to do battle in the arguments. Brett Winterbull's up next. Stay tuned for that. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.